0: Hey, y'all, this is Sam's Aunt Betty.
1: This week, the reality of mass shootings in America. All right, let's start the
0: show.
2: Hey, y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. So in the last week or so, America has seen two mass shootings, one in Atlanta and another in Boulder, Colorado. And every time there's a high-profile mass shooting, I can usually count on a few things to always happen. One, politicians will make speeches and statements that don't amount to much. Two, nothing will really seem to change. And three, The Onion will run the same article they've always run after mass shootings since 2014.
3: The headline is, No way to prevent this uh, says-only nation where this regularly happens.
2: That is Jason Roeder. He is the guy who originally wrote that piece. Now, this article from The Onion, it is seven years old. It first came out after the Isla Vista shooting. That was the one at UC Santa Barbara. Ever since then, though, The Onion has retweeted this story 17 times after other mass shootings. They just change it slightly to update the location and numbers. It's this sad reminder from a satirical news outlet of how this stuff never really seems to change.
3: I dread the day when it reaches a hundred iterations. You know, like, how long is this going to go on?
2: This past week, The Onion retweeted that story
3: twice. It's really like a, a, a chronology of the fact we've made no progress. I mean, if anything, maybe it's just in terms of taking something away from it. Are you happy with it? If you're not... Um, well, what will you say when we run it again? I suppose there's an argument to run it every day. Uh. But for now, I think they just focus on, well, you know, it's hard to say, like like the, the shootings that get the headlines. Well, what are those and why are those?
2: And that's the thing. I realized the last time I saw this story, it was back in February 2020 before the country went into lockdown, before the pandemic really hit the U.S. And I, like perhaps a lot of you, thought, oh, maybe mass shootings were down this past year because we all were cooped up. But the truth is these mass shootings and gun violence, they did not just go away because of the coronavirus. They were always here, they never left. And in fact, 2020 was one of the deadliest years for gun violence in decades.
1: As soon as shutdowns started to happen, gun violence, um, specifically intra-community, interpersonal violence, began to tick up.
2: That is Abinay Clayton. She's a reporter for The Guardian. She covers gun violence. And I called up Abinay to talk through this trend and why we haven't been hearing more about it.
1: A lot of my reporting focuses on Oakland and At the start of the year, the city was on track to have one of the lowest rates of gun violence in probably decades. And around mid-March and late April, we started seeing just multiple people killed within two week spans. And this is a trend that was duplicated in Los Angeles, in Philly, where there was a maybe 50 plus year high in 2020, and really in cities across the nation. And these shootings and homicides were concentrated in the places where we were also seeing the most COVID deaths, you know, lower income. Really? Yeah, lower income, Black and brown communities. So we just saw these numbers go through the roof. Why
2: is it? And so once you dig into the numbers, it's crazy. Um, And this data will be confirmed by the FBI a little later this year. But we know, kind of as a first read, there was a surge in daily gun violence last year that led to an estimated 4,000 additional murders in 2020 4,000 more than 2019. And experts say that 2020 will probably see the worst single-year increase in murders on record. Okay, why in the midst of all that uptick in gun violence, there was this narrative that took root over the last year that shootings were down and there were fewer mass shootings and there was less coverage of mass shootings? How can both be true?
1: Yeah, so unless you're someone who has expanded their definition of mass shooting to be strictly numbers-based rather than reaction-based, it makes sense that you would see that. Uh If I could go back for a second, in 2019, there was a really uh, terrible mass shooting in Orenda, a small suburb uh, here in the Bay Area. And Initial coverage because there were multiple casualties and multiple injuries, 100 or so people at the party. It was immediately covered as a mass shooting in the national news, it was everywhere. And in the following days, people saw that the partygoers, the victims, and the suspected shooters were all Black. And mm. it became very local it became a, a quote-unquote gang shooting wow. it was something that was seen as oh we don't need to worry about that this is just what happens when a bunch of uh, black and latino teenagers get together and there's booze involved they don't know how to act they're gonna start shooting this is no parkland this uh-huh. is no sandy hook so let's keep it local it's a criminal investigation now it's not a commentary yeah. on um the us's issue with guns And that is something that really um, affected me. A high school classmate was killed in that shooting. A high school friend Mm. was greatly traumatized by that. And they weren't lionized the same way that others are, you know, when they're shot in movie theaters and their public spaces. And a lot of that happened because this definition of mass shootings is so... um, people base it on whether or not it gets public attention, whether or not the March for Our Lives and the large gun violence prevention advocacy groups um, are talking about it. However, in my mind and in the minds of many researchers, trauma surgeons who care deeply about this subject, You know, four people shot anywhere is a mass shooting, you know, victimization is victimization. But in so many American minds and in the context of the U.S. gun debate, these are consequences of living in the hood when it happens in Philly Mm. or in Oakland and multiple people are shot at block parties.
2: And so when you have that happening you're able to have years like 2020 yeah. a year in which gun violence and gun death is actually up but no one seems to notice it is it is crazy you know so i mentioned this uptick in gun violence over the last year over this pandemic year uh, an estimated 4000 more murders than usual what to the extent we know right now caused this crazy uptick in gun violence over the course of our pandemic year
1: so um, I will certainly preface this by saying we won't have very definitive answers until we have the benefit of hindsight. Okay. And right now it's still happening. So all we yeah. have is best informed guesses. Okay. So I think um, economic desperation certainly has a lot to do with it. You know, folks are losing their jobs. People are being traumatized by a deadly pandemic, spending more time at home. um, In some places, that may not be the healthiest. But one thing that I do keep hearing from, you know, violence interrupters and different clinicians is the loss of in-person interactions that were so vital for young folks. You know, I know so many violence prevention advocates who are able to capture and diffuse really potentially deadly conflicts by showing up at high schools and there was so much great momentum and then the pandemic hit and no one could see each other again.
2: Yeah. Well and what I notice in, you know, reading your work and hearing you talk about this stuff, um, the shootings I think that Americans care the most about and give the most attention to are these high profile shootings that target strangers. You know, shootings where it's a drive by with folks that may know each other or domestic violence Mm -hmm. killings or club shootings where everyone's come up to the same party or nightclub. Those get less attention because I think it feels less out of the blue. Is that part of it too? Like when a stranger is shot, you always say to yourself, I could be that stranger. Mm -hmm. When a nightclub is shot up, you say, I don't even go to nightclubs anymore.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a really great point. Um. My colleague Lois and I wrote about this kind of framing of innocent victims versus like complicit victims, Mm, you know, this whole, well, you shouldn't have even been there. Uh Why are you even still living in that neighborhood? If you Uh know it struggles with gun violence, why are you still there? You know, we are so quick to ask when it's usually a black, brown, low income person like, oh, well. You know that this happens in your community. Why didn't you move out mm-hmm. the way? You know why? Do why would you mm-hmm. even go to that store? Why are you even on that neighborhood? You know, no one's asking about why it's unsafe for someone to visit their grandmother's home or why it's uh, unsafe for somebody to walk on a block that they've lived on for years. No one asks those questions when it's someone in. I keep using you know Philly and Oakland because these are the two places that I look at the most. But no one asked yeah, those yeah. questions then. But when you have someone at a mall, movie theater, public space, people can just identify with that more. Because it's like, oh, mm-hmm. if it's one of those, like, I was just going about my everyday life and a gunman walked in. You can see that in those situations. It's the exact same in the hood. You know, no one wakes yes. up and is like, I'm going I'm to be shot to today. That. Exactly. exactly. That's a. Well, yeah. That's a common theme in both of these, is that no one expected to wake up and lose their life to a bullet that day.
2: Yeah. You know, when I think of the coverage that the Boulder, Colorado mass shooting has gotten and the Atlanta mass shooting has gotten, one of the things that happens after a shooting, after shootings like those are covered, is the, the call for gun control measures. Yeah. Um, and these are regulations that seem specific to the types of shootings that get a lot of coverage, bans on certain types of weapons, background checks, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But would those preventative measures prevent a lot of the quote unquote gang shootings or undercovered local shootings that we don't hear about as much that are actually on the rise
1: yeah um. I don't want to, of course, dismiss any sort of efforts to address the supply of guns, restrictions, etc. But I will say a doctor that I spoke to said it really well. She looks at gun violence in terms of a public health crisis. And to understand a public health crisis, you have to know what the real disease burden is. Mm. And that's what you want to address. And in the Mm -hmm. case of gun violence, most gun deaths are suicides, one. Yeah, I think it's about two thirds. Most are suicides, white men in rural places.
2: Um,
1: And that's something that for various reasons, people don't talk about that often. But right after that, it's the murders of, usually young Black and Brown people. Hmm. And to look at high-profile mass shootings and send all of the efforts and kind of legislative goals towards that is treating the rarest form of that disease. Mm. And I think when we instinctively go to, well, that's why people shouldn't have AR-15s. And that's why We need these universal background checks and a registry. That is all fine. That is all dandy. However, it's not going to address the true burden. It's not going to affect what the majority reason for these losses of life is.
2: Thanks again to Abinay Clayton. She's a reporter at The Guardian covering gun violence. Coming up, we break down the film Minari. It is an Asian-American movie up for a lot of Oscars. But my next guest says, even if you love that movie, you probably don't get all of the nuance in the actor's performances. She'll explain.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Best Fiends. If you find yourself choosing the longest checkout line, that can only mean one thing. You've downloaded Best Fiends, the five-star rated mobile puzzle game, which means where others see a hassle, all you see is a chance to play one more level a few more times. Turn dull moments into pockets of fun. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. At CarMax, the best way to buy a car is your way. Shop on your schedule and choose from over 50,000 CarMax-certified vehicles at CarMax.com. Check out 360-degree views, set up a trade-in appraisal, apply for financing, and buy online or in-store with curbside pickup and home delivery in select markets. Get all the details and start the search for your next car today at CarMax.com. On NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we talk about what we're watching,
4: listening to, or just trying to figure out. Like what concert films you should watch if you miss live music. And great books to read, alone or in your book club. All of
0: that in around 20 minutes, every weekday. Listen now to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.
2: So after the mass shooting in Atlanta this month... Asian Americans have been urging the rest of us to reckon with America's long history of anti-Asian racism. And my next guest says that requires us examining movies as well.
4: What we see on screen, what Hollywood delivers, is inextricable from the way that Asians are perceived in real life.
2: That is Shirley Lee, she's a staff writer for The Atlantic, and I talked to her about a she wrote recently about Asian representation on screen. For a very long time, Hollywood has relied on these tropes of Asian representation that make it very easy for the industry and viewers to not really see Asians. At least not see them fully.
4: There's the trope of the inscrutable Asian. Um, There's the trope of depicting Asians as this racialized horde. And even when Asian performers are the leads, but they're exoticized or they're misunderstood.
2: But this year, that might be beginning to change.
4: I was heartened to see uh, Minari get several performance nominations at the Oscars.
2: Minari is about a Korean-American family that moves to Arkansas to start a new life on a farm. 아빠는 big garden 하나 Garden of Eden is big, like this. But the work is hard on the family. So, to get some extra help, they have a relative come to town from Korea. Unlike other movies focused on an Asian cast, two of Minari's actors did get Oscar nominations this year. But Shirley said, even still, some of the nuances of the performances in this film, they still go unrecognized.
4: When Steven Yun's name was announced, and when Yeonye Jeun's name was announced in the Best Supporting Actress category, I, I, I was... Thrilled.
3: Okay. Okay. <laughs> I
4: just felt like, oh, good, it, it happened. I think those were the two actors in the ensemble that there there had been buzz about. But on the flip side of that, you know, one of the actors I write about in the piece from Minari, Yeri Han, she's she's been overlooked, and her performance is it's not uh, melodramatic, though the way that Oscar voters have tended to. Um, Preferred in the past.
2: That's what I want to really dig into. So, you write that she offers this nuanced and subtle performance um, that Asian viewers might see and realize and know and identify with, but it's a performance that mostly white film critics who are looking for, you know, dramatic white performances. They just might not get it. <laughs> Talk more about that, and why why some people don't see that that, that 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 is actually skillful performance
4: to answer your question, I'm going to kick this over to Minari's writer director, Lee Isaac Chung. Um, I talked to him for the piece,, yeah. and he felt like her performance might be invisible, even though she's the emotional heart of the story. Yeah. so she you know, he told me her performance, th- there, there are no loud speeches, um, it's just her quote-unquote being. Yeah. And what results from this performance is a, a humming anxiety. She's not going to, you know, talk to, to her husband about how him gambling over this land that he bought is a bad idea. Um, she's really trying to hold it together for the family. And when we think of actors, we expect them to express a lot of emotions. And yeah. for her, she's holding it all back. So it's it's tough to read into that, I think, for um, audiences who don't understand that very specific Asian immigrant headspace of supporting your family by any means, not letting... You know the 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 waterworks flow.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, and and it's like this kind of perception of what is an Oscar worthy performance. It affects you know all kinds of actors. It seems particularly hurt Asian actors in certain performances. There are these other ways in which a subdued performance in a film like Minari is particularly ignored because of the ways in which Americans and American film critics have gotten used to seeing Asian people on screen. There are these stereotypes and these tropes that we always see. I know you mentioned a few of them earlier, but I want to have you kind of go through them and say exactly what they are.
4: Yeah, it's the inscrutable Asian, the perpetual foreigner, the racialized horde. All of that is foundational to the very specific invisibility of Asian actors. Um, when you think about the way that they've appeared in the past, well, either they're whitewashed <laughs> or yeah. they're in the background. They have served more often as the backdrop than as the subjects. Now, specifically yeah. with Minari, I think, you know, I think we should talk more about Stephen Yeun's performance being recognized. His performance, when it's written about by um, a lot of white film critics, I think they, they pick up on his idealism he is the character, he's the patriarch of the family who is intent on making the American dream work. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's the one who buys this plot of land in Arkansas, moves his whole family mm-hmm. out of California to to try to make it happen. And that is an immigrant narrative that we have seen in a lot of these stories, right? And immigrant stories yeah. are are certainly um, a, a, a huge genre in Hollywood movies. But that character, Stephen Young's character is also really angry in a way that I don't think I've seen picked up as much except by Asian writers and viewers. His performance is someone who is an extraordinarily angry man. um, Mm. And he Mm. is simmering with frustration over how he has not been able to make it work. And I think that is the you know, it, it's such a, it's almost such a small, slight difference. That very slight difference also works in terms of um, Yunya Zhen's performance as the grandmother. Uh, mm. I talked to her for the piece, and she had told me, you know, after screening, so many people came up to her being like, you're so funny in the movie, you're so funny, <laughs> you know? Mm. And they talk about her as like the comic relief of the film. And her character is certainly witty uh, and is in some funny situations, but she's also more than just comic relief and that goes again to the nuance that we're discussing that is often hard to talk about
2: (laughs) yeah yeah well and it's like i'm just thinking of as minari walks into the oscars with a lot of nominations and possibly an asian actor or two getting an oscar for this film are you hopeful that there is real change on this front or is it still going to kind of maybe be the same even after the Oscars?
4: (laughs) I mean, that's the classic question, right? It's like, oh, this is a step forward. Is this actually, (laughs) are we going to take two steps back right after this? I mean, it is hard to tell. I think any step forward is a step forward. But, you know, if we just look at, what happened in the past week, you know, these Oscar nominations come out. There's so there, this is a huge reason to be celebrating in the AAPI community. Um, And then the next day, the Atlanta shootings happen and
2: Mm, targeting Asian women.
4: Yes. And the conclusion that I can, that I've drawn from that is, (laughs) is that what we see on screen, what Hollywood delivers is inextricable from the way that asians are perceived in real life and that is something that we need to keep working on (laughs) you know like it's it's great to see one movie out there um become legitimized at the highest level uh you know, even though there are a lot of folks who who would say that awards don't really matter. Awards do matter for uh, a community like this. And if one story can make it, that hopefully that means more stories can make it as well.
2: Yeah. Thanks again to Shirley Lee. You can find her work at The Atlantic. Coming up, Shirley brings her friend Hannah Georgis onto the show for a little game of Who Said That? Stay with us. Are you an audacious entrepreneur with a world-changing idea? Then join us this May for the virtual How I Built This Summit hosted by me. We'll have interviews with some of the best-known entrepreneurs out there. We'll offer community-building sessions to meet other creative thinkers like you. Thanks to GoDaddy, the presenting sponsor of the How I Built This Summit. For more information, head to summit.npr.org. Hey, y'all. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm your host, Sam Sanders joined for this segment by two guests who happen to be colleagues. Uh tell folks who you are.
4: Hi, I'm
5: Shirley Lee. I'm a staff writer with the culture team at The Atlantic. I'm Hannah Georges. I too am a staff writer with the culture team at The Atlantic.
2: <laughs> okay. So were y'all like cubicle buddies in the before times in the office?
5: On
4: occasion, I uh, I work remotely because I'm based in LA. Um, but when I have visited the office, Hannah and I have seen each other. <laughs> we
5: have okay. we have met in person before. Okay, <laughs> it's been good, good, good. Once we had a nice little lunch, you know, working. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: those were the days going out to lunch with your colleagues, huh. I remember those times. I know.
4: Yeah, imagine water cooler conversations, (laughs)
2: lunches (laughs) and
4: restaurants. (laughs)
2: Right? Well, this next segment, this next game is going to be all about the types of stuff that you would have um, during that water cooler conversation. It's my favorite game. It's called Who Said That?
1: (laughs) Who said that?
2: So this game is really easy. I share three quotes from the week of news, and you got to tell me who said it. Um, guess the person or the story I'm talking about or just some keywords. Just holler out the answer when you have it. There are no buzzers. I'll try to keep score, but I'm bad at that. But it doesn't matter, because the winner gets nothing but bragging rights. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, so this first quote, I want you to fill in the blank with this one and tell me what kind of thing we're talking about. Here it is, quote. To celebrate the start of springtime, Pepsi collaborated with Peeps to develop a limited batch of its first ever blank cola. What kind of cola?
5: Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> An abomination. I don't know. <laughs> First ever gross cola.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Easter yeah. cola.
5: Uh, Easter
4: cola. Right.
2: Uh, no, specific to what peeps are. What actually are peeps? Oh, uh,
4: marshmallow.
5: Marshmallow. <laughs> cola? Yes,
2: marshmallow. No. Cola. That's no. happening This spring, no. y'all are like twins because no. you kind of said it together. so I don't know who gets that point. <laughs>
5: I, I like Anna's answer you both. <laughs> of an abomination cola. Or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Who do y'all yeah, want so to it's get this a point? Famous marketing term. <laughs> I, Cheryl, it's all you. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it.
2: <laughs> okay, Shirley, you get that point. That was Pepsi this week announcing their newest soda flavor, marshmallow cola, through a collaboration with Peeps. I want you both to Google right now peeps soda pepsi and just see it oh, it's God. trying to be cute but it looks disgusting it's this peeps yellow cola. can looking like a yellow no pink, and no. it's kind of easter themed like and it just looks nuclear
5: i don't look oh at God. it look at it ew yeah this it is looks gross. like it should be banana cola which <laughs> is not appealing to me either also why
4: i don't get why the branding is pepsi x peeps when Peepsy is
5: right there. No, surely. <laughs> oh, no. Peepsy. I'm oh my plate back. god. <laughs> you can the game
2: back. is over. We're ending this. Here's the next quote. It is also food related. Oh, no. And it's also a fill-in-the-blank. Quote. Cinnamon toast shrimp guy turned out to be a blank, just like being dad, is a sentence oh. I desperately wish I did not understand.
5: <laughs> the milkshake What's duck? In the blank? Same milkshake duck,
2: right? Yeah. Milkshake duck. Who
5: said milkshake duck? I said it, but I am... Both of us said it, but Shirley said it first. No, but I'm happy to give this one (laughs) up. No, I don't want the milkshake duck point.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So this whole story would make no sense to anybody like 10 years ago. It is entirely a story of the internet. And I will try to explain. Mm -hmm. So that tweet comes from Janelle Kumo. And she was talking about one of the main characters on Twitter this week. So this comedian, famous person, funny podcaster kind of guy named Jensen Hart, he tweets a picture this week of an open box of Cinnamon Toast Crunch. And some of the Cinnamon Toast Crunchies are coming out of the box. And there's also in the midst of the Cinnamon Toast Crunchies like shrimp tails shrimp tails yep. and he's basically like uh cinnamon toast crunch what's up this is weird this is nasty <laughs> so this starts trending on twitter and so cinnamon toast crunch tweets back and says uh uh-uh, uh didn't do it trust us we would never it was not us. Some folks start to dig into the history of Jensen Carp, the cinnamon toast shrimp guy, and it turns out he maybe fabricates stories. This is probably a hoax. And he's been like accused of abuse by several women. It was really crazy. What
5: what is y'all's take on this so story? Fast. Uh, well, he's married, I believe, to Danielle Fischel, who's the woman who played Topanga on Boy Meets World, right? That was the yes. first additional detail that I learned. Yeah. And I was like, okay, yeah. okay this is enough. Yeah. Um, But that reminded me that she had actually recently um been in the news for being racist on the set of that show. Wait, what? So I guess, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah.
2: Oh, my God. <laughs> I have to, I guess, explain at this point why in the world the words milkshake and duck are associated oh, yes. <laughs> with this cinnamon toast crunch shrimp tail story. God, this is so crazy. This whole <laughs> thing is so bonkers. But let me try to explain. The term milkshake duck is an internet meme and a term used to describe things on the internet that seem too good to be true. Mm-hmm. And the term milkshake duck all goes back to a tweet from 2016 in which an account called Pixelated Boat wrote, quote, the whole internet loves milkshake duck, a lovely duck that drinks milkshakes. Five seconds later, we regret to inform you the duck is racist. <laughs> it's a lot of wind up to tell y'all a story that means absolutely nothing in the real world. That,
4: Sam, that that's my take on it. Like, I'm disheartened to know exactly what that sentence means you know what all of this means. (laughs) and and it's just it's too much honestly like my my take on this is whenever a story like this appears on twitter i'm like i've already braced myself for it to become a milkshake duck situation
5: and i feel like milkshake duck isn't even the right term anymore i don't know well milkshakes are (laughs) Inherently racist, in my opinion, because it's just too much <laughs> lactose. <laughs> That's anti-black, just by, by virtue of existing. Oh, my God. Hannah!
2: <laughs> but we still like ducks, right? Are we all still good with we ducks? Do, we,
5: yes. Yes.
2: <laughs> ducks are great. Uh, who got that point?
5: Uh, uh,
2: <laughs> my team says that it goes to Shirley. Oh, boy. All right. <laughs> okay, Shirley, you got it. Here's the last quote. Tell me what big chain we're talking about. Here's a quote. I love that you want to thank people for getting the hashtag COVID-19, hashtag vaccine. Every uh, instance <laughs> of helps and free donuts may this, help move the needle. However, donuts are a cream. treat that's not good for health. they eaten every day. Yeah, Krispy Kreme. Who said that? Oh,
5: no. Krispy Kreme, and it was Leanna Wen, who was the uh, former president of Planned Parenthood and also the former Baltimore City Health Commissioner, I believe. You, wow!
2: Look at you knowing are stuff. <laughs> so that quote does in fact come from former Planned Parenthood president Dr. Lena when um, she was critiquing Krispy Kreme after the donut chain announced that it would be giving out a free glazed donut to anybody who could prove that they had a COVID nineteen vaccination. Um, but this doctor says no, you shouldn't be having that many donuts, and she says that in fact. <laughs> if someone ate an original glazed Krispy Kreme donut every day and changed no other aspects of their diet slash exercise, this doctor, Dr. Nguyen, she says that they would gain approximately 15 pounds by the end of 2021, to which I say... <laughs> densing that bad, <laughs> worth the trade off. Does not.
5: Yeah, that's just the same also thing as a freshman fifteen. Right, and that's making a lot of assumptions about people's commitment to going to get the donut every day.
4: <laughs> every day. <laughs> yeah, I think this is when I admit that I've actually never had a Krispy Kreme donut. <sighs>
5: And oh. where I admit that I don't actually like them very much. <laughs> Wait, what? Why don't you like them? I, th- I think they're too sweet. Um, but I say this as a person who doesn't have that much of a sweet tooth. And I wow. can understand why other people like them. They're just not for me.
2: Um, I have no idea who actually won this game, but I will say I think it was Weird Snacks did. She, okay, Shirley. yeah.
4: <laughs> it was a fun game. <laughs> lots of food stories
2: (laughs) Uh, well congrats to Shirley for winning the game congrats to you both Uh, to close this segment out tell folks again who you are what you do and where they can find you.
4: Well, I am Shirley Lee with the Atlantic's culture team. And you can find me on Twitter at XP.
5: <laughs> I'm Hannah Georges, also a staff writer with the culture team at the Atlantic. Um, and I am on Twitter at just my name, Hannah Georges.
0: Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best
1: thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions.
4: Hi, Sam. This is Meg from Chevrolet, Maryland. And the best thing to happen in my week was that my husband became a US citizen. Hi,
1: Sam. I think the
5: best thing this week so far is that I'm ready for my annual Easter egg event. This is going to be my eighth year painting uh, wooden Easter eggs for my Atlanta community. Whoever finds it in the public spaces, that's theirs.
2: Hey Sam, my name is Brandon. I live in Brooklyn. The best thing for me this week has been video chatting with my grandma for the first time in a while. That really made me, made me really happy.
5: Hi Sam, this is Agatha in Denver, Colorado. The best thing about my week is that after almost three months of being by myself in Prague doing fertility treatments, I'm finally home to my husband and the best dog ever, Alice. And according to my blood test, I'm pregnant. Hi, Sam. Hi, Sam. This is Abby. And David. From Virgin's, Vermont. The best part of our week was getting married and having the virtual wedding celebration of our dreams. Hi, Sam. My name's Juliana, and I'm from Massachusetts, and I... I'm going to do something really big today. I'm recording this before I do it. That way I can make sure I follow through with it. But I'm 27 years old. I have a master's degree and a bachelor's degree. And as of later today, I will be debt free. I'm going to pay off all my student loans. I've saved up enough money to pay them off. And I'm going to pay off my car. And I'm so excited to not owe anyone money. So then I can go looking for a house. Have a great day.
1: We love your show.
5: Thanks, Sam. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you. Debt free. Congratulations. That is a good, good feeling. All right. Thanks to all those listeners you heard there. Juliana, Abby and David, Agatha, Brandon, Thomas and Meg. I got to say best part of my week. uh, I think it was Thursday. I had leftover pizza for breakfast and it was perfect. All right, listeners, don't forget, you can send the best part of your week to us here at the show anytime throughout any week. Just record yourself on your phone and send that voice memo to me via email, sam.sanders@npr.org. Email us at sam.sanders@npr.org. At I want to take some time now and thank some folks who are consistently some of the best parts of my week, the team that makes this show. This week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Janae West, Andrea Gutierrez, and Sylvie Douglas. Our intern is Liam McBain. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Listeners, till next time, be good to yourselves. Maybe have some pizza for breakfast sometime soon. It feels nice. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.